My mother always tells me to smile and put on a happy face. Is it just me? Or is it getting crazier out there? Smile, though your heart is aching. Smile, even though it's breaking. I used to think that my life was a tragedy. But now I realize it's a comedy. who put on a happy face. I'll be your host this evening, Travis Max O'Boone. We just recently covered some supernatural oddity, uh, my wife being spooked by a shadow person and some entity known as Ben. And we've already covered a horror topic. We've got some of those uh, coming up later this month. But I thought we would take a left turn or a right turn. I don't know which way I'm going with this. But I wanted to discuss something that's a little bit more grounded in reality, even though it comes from a fantasy world. That being one of the greatest villains of all time. Arguably the greatest comic book villain of all time. One small thing. Yeah. When you bring me out, can you introduce me as Joker? The Joker. But before we discuss the clown prince of crime, I want you to join us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or visit the official website, thenightclub.fireside.fm, for other podcatchers, our blog entries, and direct from the void downloads and streaming. Find us at facebook.com slash thenightclubpodcast. Check us out on Instagram at Instagram.com slash The Nightclub Podcast. Or you can reach out and touch pure evil using our email, thenightclubpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe, give a five-pointed pentagram rating, and write up a review. We don't have any written as of this recording. I'd like to see some of that, please. Now that the professional stuff is out of the way, you don't have to ask, why so serious? Let's talk about the Joker. He's a supervillain created by Bill Finger, Bob Kane, and Jerry Robinson, who first appeared in the Batman comic book on April 25th, 1940. In his numerous comic book appearances, the Joker is always portrayed as some sort of criminal mastermind with a twisted sense of humor. And this character has seen a vast amount of different incarnations over the years, in comic books, in television, and in film, permeating pop culture. 
but my initial experience with the character Joker started with the Batman animated series. It was heavily inspired by the Tim Burton Batman movie from 1989, where Joker was played by Jack Nicholson. In the animated show, the Joker was voiced by Mark Hamill. That's right, motherfucking Luke Skywalker is the Joker. He's also gone on to voice the Joker in many video games. And I think by this point, he's the definitive voice people think of when they think Joker. That laugh. Mark Hamill's Joker laugh is insane. It can be low and menacing and completely out of control manic. And in his many incarnations, the Joker has been seen as a deranged psychopath with genius level intelligence but he's also been seen as a sort of goofy prankster. Pretty much benign and a little harmless. The most famous version of this Joker, at least when it comes to a visual medium of moving pictures, is Cesar Romero, who played the Joker in the 1960s Batman television series starring Adam West and Burt Ward as the Cape Crusader and the Boy Wonder, respectively. What makes the Joker such a dynamic villain is his obsession with his enemy. They sort of have this yin and yang type of thing going on. They are different sides of the same coin, or same Joker's card. Both men are of a tragic background, and while Batman goes the way of justice and order, Joker takes the route of murder and chaos. I think the chaotic evil version of Joker was best portrayed by Heath Ledger in Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. He describes himself as an agent of chaos at the bedside of Harvey Dent. And as he puts it, he's like a dog chasing a car. He wouldn't really know what to do with it if he had it, and that he doesn't plan anything. He just does. But if you've seen that film, he's probably full of shit and just trying to manipulate Harvey. In many of the different stories featuring the Joker, He's always seen as an unreliable narrator, such as in The Killing Joke. This always leaves his true origins shrouded in mystery. He's also both depicted as sexual and asexual, with some even saying there's homoerotic undertones in his relationship with Batman. Joker does have a love interest in Harley Quinn, who he abuses all the time, but then woos her back to his side. This is him asserting his dominance over her, keeping her in his control, adding to this guy's twisted fucking mind. He's also portrayed as having no fear whatsoever. Even Scarecrow's fucking scare juice doesn't do anything to him. He gets sprayed in the face, looks Scarecrow right in the eyes, and just says, Boo! and then laughs. Some literary analysis of the Joker has him seen as the trickster. And like a trickster... He bounces back and forth between being insanely violent and deadly smart and also being hilariously whimsical. Another interpretation sees him as a anarchist in juxtaposition to Batman's more capitalist leaning. The Joker doesn't respect or like any sort of authority figures, but he asserts himself as an authority over everyone around him. I've touched on a few of the different people that have played the Joker in various roles, 
But there's two more I want to talk about. One of them being Jared Leto in the 2016 film Suicide Squad. This origin of the Joker has him manipulating his psychiatrist, Dr. Harleen Quinzel. Hmm, you can guess who she is. And then falling in love while he is a patient at Arkham Asylum. This version of the Joker looks more like rapper Paul Wall with this insane grill, ridiculous tattoos. It's a very risky appearance from what the Joker normally looks like, and it fell very short. Lastly, and most recently, we have Joaquin Phoenix starring as the titular character in Todd Phillips' Joker. I'm going to dive into more of this story in a second, but first I've got a list of some of the worst things Joker has ever done. Along with his iconography, he's as popular as he is because he's so fucking insane and so ruthless. He discards logic, kills anyone for no reason, and commits heinous acts, all with a smile. In Batman Confidential number 11, the Joker sent a blimp over Gotham City, blew it up, and it was not only filled with explosives, but broken glass tainted with his Joker venom. This is his signature weapon. It's a poison that forces a horrifying smile onto the faces of his victims, leaving them dead with a rictus grin. This guy essentially rained glass down over Gotham. The death count must have been insane. Going back to Tim Burton's 1989 Batman film, Jack Napier, who became the Joker in that film by falling into a vat of acid, causing his skin to get bleached white, his hair to turn green, and his lips to be blood red, which is a common origin from some of the comic books, was obsessed with his own disfigurement and figured he would spread his pain throughout Gotham. He contaminated a beauty product with a chemical called Smilex. It had pretty much the same effect as the Joker Venom I previously mentioned. And speaking of poison in Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns, the Joker sets up a booth at a county fair to hand out free poison cotton candy to 16 Cub Scouts. They all died. In Detective Comics number 741, the Joker kidnapped dozens of babies and hid them in the Gotham police station down in the basement. Commissioner Gordon's wife, Sarah Essen, tried to stop the Joker by pulling a gun on him, and he tossed the baby at her. When she caught the baby, he shot her in the head and left the baby to crawl over her bloody corpse. Jokers also skinned one of his own henchmen, electrocuted Harley Quinn, killed Robin, killed himself by snapping his own neck, turned all of Gotham into zombies. But what might be the most fucked up thing took place in Batman Cacophony. Illustrated by Walt Flanagan and written by Kevin Smith, this Batman story has a very brutal scene. In this comic, Joker's venom was being mixed with ecstasy to create a street drug called Chuckles. This pissed the Joker off. And to exact revenge, he blew up a school full of kids. That's just a handful of the things Joker has done and his most brutal crimes have usually been in the comic books. But I want to get extremely grounded here. Tonight we're going to talk about the new film Joker, Todd Phillips' masterpiece. And that's right, I'm saying it, masterpiece. I saw this film knowing the controversy surrounding it, 
people saying it was trying to make a political statement this way or that way, left or right. And that kind of ties back to the beginning of this. Maybe that's where this is going. The woke folks in this country say that the new Joker film could spark some crazy white man to go on a shooting spree. While the retarded right insists that it's an allegory for what many people are in fact feeling. And while I do think that some people can relate to the character Joaquin Phoenix is playing in this movie, its true message is sort of being missed by mainstream media. It's not going to incite a bloody riot, but maybe it'll spark conversation, giving way to a deeper compassion in our society. I want to officially introduce The Midnight Ritual. In the first episode, Unlucky Bloodletting, I did a detailed scene-by-scene -scene breakdown of the Evil Dead from 1981. This wasn't necessarily meant to be the first Midnight Ritual, but it happened to be. So what is the Midnight Ritual? That's after the sun has long set. You stay up extra late, pop some popcorn, grab a slice of pizza, pick your drink of choice, and settle in for something spooky. In our Midnight Ritual, we break down movies scene by scene and I want to warn everyone this is going to be detailed so if you have not seen the movie I'm going to discuss please stop listening now Phillips's Joker has numerous comparisons online to Taxi Driver and King of Comedy, Martin Scorsese films. It was never a hidden agenda to make a Martin Scorsese-esque type of film. In fact, Todd Phillips said that's exactly what he wanted to do. Although, I see a little bit more Henry portrait of a serial killer. But I'm also not distracted by its influences. I personally think this film elevates itself above that. And if wearing influences on its sleeve is a problem for some people, then they shouldn't like the film Alien, which was heavily influenced by It the Terror from Beyond Space and The Thing from Another World. This psychological thriller was directed by Tob Phillips, who co-wrote it with Scott Silver, and it's meant to be an origin story set in 1981 Gotham. The film stars Joaquin Phoenix as Arthur Fleck, Robert De Niro as Murray Franklin, Zazie Beetz as Sophie Dumond, and Francis Conroy as Penny Fleck. The film's initial release was August 31st, 2019, at the Venice Film Festival where it went on to win the Golden Lion, one of the most prestigious awards in the entire film industry. A few of the previous winners include The Shape of Water and Roma, but its wide release was on October 4th, and I saw it on October 6th. At the time of this recording, on a budget of $55 million, not including the marketing, this movie has a total worldwide box office gross of $272 million, and it's just beginning its theatrical run.
film opens on Arthur Fleck applying makeup and forcing a smile by stretching his mouth out with his hands. As the news over the radio talks about the city's ills, mostly piles and piles of garbage due to a strike by the city workers. We then hear a jaunty piano tune as yellow title cards flash over a busy intersection in Gotham City. Arthur is seen in full clown regalia, dancing around with a sign as a business is going out of sale, and the pianist is playing there on the street to attract potential customers. A gang of youths run out of nowhere and snatch Arthur's sign. Arthur gives chase, almost being struck by several cars, and runs down an alley where the sign is smashed over his head and he is beaten to the ground. The camera backs away from the broken man, laying amongst his shattered sign as the title credit Joker covers the screen. Cut to Arthur laughing uncontrollably and seemingly in pain, holding back tears in front of his psychologist, a social worker he sees on a regular basis. He asks her, is it just me or are things getting crazier out there? The social worker asks Arthur to produce his journals so she can read through it. He does, reluctantly, but he says he's been using it not only as a journal, but for some of his comedy ideas. He tells her he had mentioned he was going to try his hand at stand-up comedy. She says she doesn't think so, but he asserts that he did. One line jumps off the page and she reads it aloud. I hope my death makes more sense than my life with sense being spelled to represent money. I have to admit, it's kind of funny. She asks him if seeing her helps him, but he claims he felt better when he was locked up in the hospital. And there's a jump cut to him, all in white, slamming his head into a wall, presumably when he was in an insane asylum. Arthur asks her to up his dosage, and she says the seven different medications he's on should be helping. He tells her, I just don't want to feel so bad anymore. On a bus, Arthur is staring out of the window, the blank expression, and then notices a kid looking at him, and he tries to make the kid laugh by making faces, but he's berated by the child's mother. He begins laughing uncontrollably again and tries to explain between the fits that he has a condition. He hands her a card that details that due to a head trauma, he experiences these bouts of laughter. She appears unsympathetic. Arthur picks up his prescription and walks home through an obviously poverty-stricken part of Gotham, up a long stairway that becomes a character in the movie in and of itself, and into a dingy apartment building. We learn he is still living with his mother, Penny Fleck, and the news is talking about a rat scourge in the city. Arthur's mom begins complaining that she hasn't received a reply in the form of a letter from Thomas Wayne, who she claims can help them and will make a great mayor someday. Robert De Niro shows up on television as Murray Franklin, a late-night talk show host of The Murray Franklin Show. As he begins his monologue, the film slips seamlessly into fantasy as Arthur is seen in the live audience, and he yells out that he loves Murray. Murray Franklin starts talking to him, putting the spotlight on him, and tells him that there's something special about him. He can just see it. Arthur says he was born and raised in Gotham and lives with his mom, which makes the crowd laugh at him. Murray tells them that this isn't funny, that he lived with his mom too before he made it big. Arthur says his mom always tells him to put on a happy face and that he was meant to spread joy and happiness to the world. This wins the crowd back over when he says he takes good care of his mother. 
They cheer as Murray invites Arthur down from the crowd to the stage, where he tells him that he would give up all the lights and cameras and fame if he had a kid like Arthur as they embrace. The next day, at Arthur's job, in the dressing room, one of his fellow clown employees named Randall gives him a gun for protection after hearing about Arthur being beaten. Arthur is uncomfortable with the gun, but he keeps it, hoping to not get jumped by some thugs again. Another employee named Gary comes in and tells Arthur that the boss Hoyt wants to see him. Randall cracks a joke at Gary's expense because Gary is a little person, and everyone laughs, including Arthur, but as he walks into his boss's office, he suddenly stops laughing. This is a sign of his dissociation with the people around him. He's forcing a laugh to fit in. His boss tells him that he needs to return the sign that he assumes Arthur stole, or it's going to come out of his paycheck. Arthur tries to explain that he was jumped, but Hoyt just yells at him, and we cut to Arthur pounding garbage, literally. He's behind a building, next to a dumpster, fighting with bags of trash. He climbs that long stairway again, checks his empty mailbox with no letter from Thomas Wayne, and boards the elevator in his apartment building. Another tenant, a beautiful young woman, Sophie Dumond, and her child get on with Arthur. The kid's incessant talking makes Sophie mimic shooting herself, which Arthur does as well, but in a much more dramatic fashion. But she smiles all the same. We see Arthur bathing his mother in the next scene while she goes on about Thomas Wayne being a good man that could help them if only he knew how they were living. Arthur assures Penny that his stand-up is ready for the big clubs, but she asks, don't you have to be funny to be a comedian? It's a little disheartening, Mom. Later that night, Arthur is watching TV and messing with the gun Randall gave him when a live round goes off and leaves a bullet hole in the wall. From her bedroom, we hear a startled Penny yelling out, What was that? And Arthur claims he's just watching some old war movie. The next morning, Arthur goes full creepo mode and stalks Sophie as she brings her child to school, rides the train with her at a distance, and watches her enter her job at a bank. Presumably that evening, Arthur is at a comedy club taking notes and laughing at all the wrong times. He isn't sure when a punchline is a punchline and when a setup is not a punchline. He's just confused as to what is actually funny and what other people are laughing at. Later, when he's going over these notes, he writes down, people expect you to behave as if you don't, chuckling to himself. One of the few times in the film where the laughter might be real and not his condition, which might not be real either. Again, unreliable narrator. We've already seen the film slip into these fantasies, so who's to say that his uncontrollable laughter isn't a farce? Sophie comes over to the apartment and confronts him about following her that day. She says he should have robbed the place, meaning her job at the bank, and in an uncharacteristic moment, Arthur is actually kind of smooth and says he has a gun and he'll come by tomorrow, but in a flirty way. He also invites her to go see him perform stand-up. The next thing that happens is the catalyst that sets off a chain of events that completely spiral down into darkness and depression. Arthur is entertaining a bunch of sick children in a hospital room, dressed as a clown, and while he's dancing and jigging about, he drops his gun on the floor. This scene balances tension, comedy, awkwardness, all at the same time. He plays it off, 
picking the gun up, hiding it away, and shushing the kids as they giggle. His boss, Hoyt, however, is not amused by this, and fires him for not only having the gun, but for buying it from Randall, as Randall claims he did. Broken yet again from being fired from his job, Arthur's on a subway train, sitting and keeping to himself, when he sees some well-to-do drunk men harassing a female passenger, throwing french fries at her. Fucking french fries. The situation causes Arthur's uncontrollable laughter to start up as the woman flees the train car. The three drunk men approach Arthur while singing Send In the Clowns as the lights in the car flicker on and off and Arthur's laugh continues. The drunks begin beating Arthur and he shoots them in self-defense, killing two and wounding one. Once the train stops, Arthur and the wounded man exit and Arthur guns him down, killing him as well. This rush comes over him as he flees from the subway station, running through the filthy streets of Gotham, trash cans ablaze, homeless people lying everywhere, and finds refuge in a grimy bathroom. A bizarre sequence ensues as the score swells, and Arthur dances slowly in the disgusting waste around him and admires himself in the mirror as he finishes his waltz of death. He then returns to his apartment building and embraces his love interest with a kiss. The next day, while cleaning out his locker, the other clowns are talking about the subway killings. Arthur confronts Randall about the gun that he gave him, and says before leaving he had forgotten to punch out, and then proceeds to punch the time clock repeatedly until it falls off the wall. At home, he and Penny are watching the news, and it turns out that three men that Arthur had murdered were employees of Wayne Enterprises. Thomas Wayne is being interviewed about the murders and how the poor in Gotham are siding with the killer due to the difference in status. In an off-the-cuff comment, Wayne says that people who make something of their lives will always look at the cowards like the murderer as clowns. At his next session with the social worker, Arthur fusses her for never really listening, telling her that all he has are negative thoughts, but now he knows that he actually exists and that people are starting to notice. She tells him the city has cut their funding, and that they don't give a shit about people like her or Arthur. He essentially has no way of getting his medications anymore. We then see Arthur going up on stage at the comedy club from earlier in the film to perform his stand-up act, but as soon as he hits the stage, his uncontrollable laughter begins, and he can't even get out his first joke. Sophie is there in the crowd, and she is shown smiling, as some upbeat happy music swells and the dialogue fades, we hear the audience in the club applauding. Afterward, Arthur and Sophie are walking past a newsstand when they notice that all of the newspapers are talking about the murders. Sophie says she thinks it's a good thing. Three less pricks in Gotham and a million to go. And they then finish up their date with dinner at a diner. Arthur returns home just as the Murray Franklin show is ending with his catchphrase, That's Life. He dances with Penny and sends her off to bed, but not before she can tell him that he needs to mail a letter, another one written to Thomas Wayne. Curious, Arthur opens the letter and in the writing learns that he is the love child of Thomas Wayne and Penny Fleck. He goes ballistic for never being told this, and frightens his mother who locks herself in the bathroom and refuses to talk to him until he calms down. Arthur chills, and she explains that Wayne said they couldn't be together 
due to his marriage, so she signed confidentiality agreements to cover up the affair and the fact that Arthur is a Wayne. This knowledge drives Arthur to visit Wayne Manor on the outskirts of Gotham. As he approaches the mansion, he sees a young boy playing outside on a gazebo behind the gates on the property. To defuse the encounter, Arthur silently begins performing some clown-like antics and lowers the boy's guard. They meet at the front gate and Arthur finds out that this boy is Bruce Wayne. After an introduction, Arthur forces Bruce to smile the same way he was forcing himself to smile at the beginning of the film by sticking his fingers in the boy's mouth. Alfred shows up, gets Bruce away from him and asks him what he's doing there. Arthur explains what Penny had told him and Alfred, looking frustrated, tells him that his mother was sick in the head. This pisses Arthur off and he grabs Alfred through the gate but when he sees Bruce getting worried and scared he releases the butler and runs off. Back at the apartment, Arthur sees his mother is being wheeled out on a gurney by paramedics so he hops in the ambulance and they take off. At the hospital, Arthur's outside smoking a cigarette, something he's been doing throughout the entire film and will continue to do, when two detectives approach him and say that they had some questions for him, but he wasn't home, so they spoke to his mother. Arthur assumes they caused Penny to lose her shit and have a stroke, but the detectives go on to question him about being fired from ha-has. That was his clown job, some sort of clown temp agency I don't know what the fuck they do but being fired for having a gun which he tells them was a prop and part of his act they also ask if his laughing condition is a real condition or some sort of clown thing also a part of his act Arthur asks what do you think flicking his cigarette away turning around and walking right into the glass exit door of the hospital up in his mother's hospital room Arthur's girlfriend goes to get them coffee and on the Murray Franklin show, they play a recording of Arthur's stand-up act that somebody had made from the night that he bombed. Murray makes fun of him and mockingly calls him a joker as his studio audience laughs. This clearly destroys Arthur, being ridiculed by his hero, cold-blooded. Back at home, Arthur sees news coverage of protests from the angry and impoverished in Gotham, who have taken on the clown persona from the subway killer because of Thomas Wayne's remarks that the downtrodden are clowns. In a new interview, Wayne states that he wishes they understood he was running for mayor so he could help them. Arthur feels inspired and goes to the protest outside of a theater where the Waynes are watching a screening of Modern Time. Arthur sneaks past a police barricade and puts on a theater usher's outfit. He sees Thomas Wayne exit the theater and go to the restroom. So he approaches him and tries to talk about Penny. Wayne knows about Arthur showing up at his home and tells him that he can't be his father because Arthur was adopted and Penny was arrested and hospitalized because of her delusions. Arthur gets upset and yells at Thomas Wayne saying he doesn't understand why everyone, including Wayne, is rude, doesn't want anything other than some warmth, maybe a hug, and his laughing fits begin. Wayne punches Arthur in the face and tells him that if he ever touches Bruce again, he'll kill him. Sinking into a depression, climbing into his fridge, and staying in bed all day, Arthur eventually gets a phone call from the showrunners of the Murray Franklin show, who want to invite him to come on since his video was such a huge hit. Arthur agrees to appear on the show, 
but needing to get to the bottom of his mother's claims and Wayne's denial, Arthur goes to Arkham State Hospital. He admits to the clerk searching for Penny's file that he had recently done some bad shit and thought it might bother him, but it really hasn't. The uneasy clerk tells him that there are programs where he can get advice, but Arthur mocks him and says that the funding's been cut. After producing the file, the clerk tells him that his mother was sent there for endangerment of her own child and that she suffered from a myriad of mental disorders. Arthur snatches the files and evades the guards in a stairwell where he discovers that he was indeed adopted and abused by one of his mother's ex-boyfriends repeatedly and was found chained to the radiator, malnourished, battered, with severe head injuries. In a constant state of being broken, Arthur walks home in the rain and goes to Sophie's apartment, where she is shocked to see this man sitting on her couch. They had never been dating. She was merely a comforting delusion that he had. He again mimics the gunshot to the head as she puts her hands over her mouth, and we cut to him storming down the hall and back to his apartment. Sophie and her child's fate are never known, although Arthur is laughing uncontrollably on his couch as sirens blare outside. When he returns to the hospital, he tells his mom that his laughing condition isn't something that's wrong with him. It's the real him, and that he hasn't been happy a single day in his life. He also admits that he used to think his life was a tragedy, but now he knows it's a comedy. Then he smothers Penny with a pillow, killing her. Back at the apartment, Arthur practices being introduced on the Murray Franklin show and plans a joke that he wants to tell. When being prompted to deliver a joke, he says knock knock and pulls the gun from his waistband, then mimes shooting himself as the audience on the television cheers. He prepares for his big appearance by bathing, dancing around the bathroom, and applying some new clown makeup. But halfway through this process, the doorbell rings and he pockets some scissors before answering. His old clown pals from Haha's, Randall and Gary, have come by because they heard about his mother dying and wanted to see him. They ask if the makeup is related to the protest at City Hall that day, but he says he is celebrating. Randall asks Arthur what he had been saying to the detectives because they were questioning everyone at Haha's and looking for Randall. Wanting to get his story straight, being the real motive of why he came under the guise of sympathy for Arthur's mother's death, Arthur begins violently stabbing Randall with the hidden scissors over and over in the neck, and Arthur slams Randall's head into the wall. As Randall lay dead on the floor, Arthur, covered in blood, tells Gary he can leave and that he won't hurt him. The sniveling Gary slowly walks past Arthur, who jumps at him for a joke scare, and Gary runs to the door, but the latch is locked and too high for the little man to reach. Arthur gets up and apologizes for the lock. Before letting Gary go, he thanks him for being the only one that was nice to him at his former job. Decked out in a stylish purple suit and with fresh face paint, Arthur dances down that long stairway from earlier in the film while smoking a cigarette. The two detectives from the hospital call out to him from the top of the staircase, and Arthur flees on foot as a chase begins. Arthur is struck by a taxi but continues to run down into the subway and enter one of the train cars that's filled with clown mask wearing protesters on their way to the rally, making it difficult and dangerous for the detectives to find Arthur among the crowd. 
and one of the subway cars Arthur pulls off a mask from one of the protesters as a fight breaks out and one of the detective and one of the detectives shoots a protester in the scuffle which causes the entire crowd to mob them as they're beaten Arthur reveals himself and exits the subway station Murray Franklin comes to meet Arthur before the show in the dressing room at the studio and asks if the makeup is a political statement Arthur says it isn't he isn't political he doesn't believe in anything but requests that he be introduced as Joker because that's what Murray called him on the show Arthur waits backstage, smoking yet again, and begins that waltz of death, his saunter of slaughter, as he's introduced and the curtains open. He kisses discount Dr. Ruth, the previous guest on the show, before taking his seat for the interview. Murray asks about his clown getup, and Arthur restates that he isn't political. He's then asked for a joke, opening him up to perform his knock-knock suicide but instead pulls out a journal. He begins knock-knock, the tension and score building dread, but it's followed by, it's the police, ma'am. Your son has been hit by a drunk driver and he's dead. The joke doesn't go over well and Arthur says it's been a rough bunch of weeks ever since he killed the three men on the subway. Everyone assumes it's another tasteless joke, but is taken aback when he says he thinks it's funny. Murray asks if he did this to start a movement or to become some sort of symbol. Arthur says he did it because they were awful and couldn't carry a tune. The crowd boos and Arthur chides them for not giving a shit unless Thomas Wayne cries about it. He says Gotham's lack of civility could make anyone werewolf and go wild. Furthermore, he tells Murray that he too is awful for making fun of him on the show. Murray disagrees. But Arthur offers up another joke. What do you get when you cross a mentally ill loner in a society that abandons him and treats him like trash? You get what you fucking deserve. At this point, Arthur pulls out his gun and shoots Murray in the head point blank and the audience freaks out and begins pouring out of the studio. Joker stands up shoots the dead body of the talk show host again and approaches one of the still live cameras where he states Murray's catchphrase that's life before we cut to a wall of screens showing news coverage of Murray's on-air death protesters rioting and then we cut to Arthur being driven through the carnage of Gotham in the back of a cop car the citizens are looting burning everything and Arthur is laughing the cops blame him say he's the cause of all of this which he admits yeah he is and says isn't it beautiful when suddenly the cop car is struck by another vehicle a clown mask sporting driver steps out of that vehicle and several other rioters remove Arthur from the wreckage and place him on the hood of the cop car at this time Thomas his wife Martha and young Bruce are exiting a theater showing a Zorro film amidst the chaos and take an alley to escape. Here another clown mask wearing person approaches the family, tells Thomas he gets what he deserves, quoting Joker, and shoots Thomas and Martha dead. Joker awakens, rises and relishes in the praise of the mob, smearing blood from his injuries across his face to create a smile. After a fade to black, 
We hear Arthur laughing and then see him back in the mental institution. His therapist asks him what's so funny. He tells her he is thinking of a joke and we see the image of Bruce Wayne standing in Crime Alley above his dead parents. The therapist asks if he wants to tell her the joke, but he says she wouldn't get it. Arthur is then seen walking down the hall in cuffs, leaving a trail of bloody footprints as hospital staff chase him through the facility with the title credit reading, The End. That's life. So that's the gist of 2019's Joker, directed by Todd Phillips. And what he managed to accomplish here, again, some people are comparing to Taxi Driver or other Scorsese films. I completely didn't. I wasn't even paying attention to any sort of comparisons. I was absorbing the film for what it was, what it was trying to talk about. The themes of mental illness, classism in America, and even though the film is set in 1981, it resonates with what's happening currently today. Before I finish talking about Joker, I wanted to discuss a few fan theories that are floating around. The film makes clear that Zazie Beetz's character, Sophie Dumond, is actually not the girlfriend of Arthur Fleck, and that he was imagining all of their interactions, besides the elevator scene and him breaking into her apartment. But some speculate that after he climbs into the refrigerator, to commit suicide, everything that happens after that is his death fantasy. And he plays out how he wished his life would end, getting a phone call from the Murray Franklin show, taking revenge against Randall, and smiting his hero as the city burns around him and praises his revolution of chaos. But the hardest pill to swallow is perhaps nothing happened. When we see Arthur banging his head against the wall in the psychiatric hospital early on in the film, that's what's actually going on. And him saying he felt better when he was in the institution is breaking the fantasy. Then at the very end of the film, when we see him all in white, sitting across from his therapist, that's the fantasy coming to an end. And Arthur telling her that she wouldn't get the joke, the joke's been on us the whole time. The entire movie was a farce. And even though I like this theory the least, one little bit of trivia came from director Todd Phillips himself. He states that there are different laughs in the film, and whether it's Arthur's affliction or his uh, fake laugh when he's trying to fit in with the people around him, they vary and you can tell them apart. But the laugh at the end of the movie, Phillips says, is the only genuine laugh from Arthur in the film. My own interpretation, I don't really agree with that. I think that there are a few moments where he does genuinely laugh, such as when he's watching Modern Time in the movie theater. And before I close this communion, I wanted to argue for Joker's horror status. There are a few films that border on this, classics such as Silence of the Lambs and Jaws. Silence of the Lambs being a psychological thriller and Jaws being sort of a creature feature with a more dramatic bent. While Jaws created the blockbuster, and Silence of the Lambs was the first horror film to win Best Picture, they're still highly debated, despite their merits, whether or not they should be included in the genre. The atmosphere of the film, along with the score and the visuals, are always building tension in every scene, 
and that was definitely Todd Phillips' intention. He wanted to execute something that would fill the audience with dread, and I believe it works because when the film pops, it's bloody good. Not to mention how grim the movie is overall. When we see Gotham City and its desperate civilians at the bottom of the trash heap punching up, 99% of us can relate to that sort of desperation and know those dark places. And the actions of our main character, Arthur Fleck, are by far some of the most horrifying and unsettling things I've ever seen in a character study. I had mentioned earlier that Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer is more in line with this movie than Taxi Driver or King of Comedy. And I think it's because that it is about a loner who's lashing out at the parts of society that reject him. And while this might be the case somewhat with Taxi Driver, I feel Arthur Fleck is a much more debilitated person. And although some scenes are lifted, I think they have enough of a unique spin on them that, as I said again, I didn't even notice the comparisons while I was enjoying the film. And yeah, I enjoyed this miserable, dark piece of shit. <laughs> and I don't mean it's a piece of shit. I mean, the world is shitty. Arthur's life is shitty. Everything he has to deal with is shitty. The people around him are shitty. And that's why at the end of the movie, he loses his goddamn mind and blasts Robert fucking De Niro's head off in front of a live television audience sparking insane fucking riots in the city. I love this movie. And it's growing on me a lot. I highly recommend it. If it's still in theaters when you hear this, do yourself a favor. Go see it. Now I know this, this episode was probably a little bit uh, of a different stroke as we wade through these dark waters together. But you can expect more of that. The nightclub's not always going to be horror movies or supernatural. Even though I just argued for this being a horror film, horror-esque. Horror in the same sense as A Silence of the Lambs. But I want to thank you for listening. Again, go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Give us that five-star rating. Leave a review. I'll definitely mention it on the show. Email in the nightclub podcast at gmail.com I'll read emails on the show haven't gotten anything yet other than comments and stuff on social media so I'd like a little bit more interaction come on commune with us that's the whole point of this thing so until next time I've been Travis Maxwell Boone I want you to put on a happy face and stay spooky bitches bitches